0: 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work.
1: Shopify.com work.
2: This week, Britain injected the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine into patients for the first time. And India has issued emergency use authorization for the jab. But India's government halted exports from one of the vaccine's largest manufacturing facilities. Is vaccine nationalism disrupting efforts to immunize the world? Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Couquier, a senior editor at The Economist. And coming up on today's show the rollout of COVID-19 vaccines.
1: For the foreseeable future, there will not be enough vaccine to go around. And so in conditions where supply is short, there's a great temptation for countries to try and get hold of as much as possible. And imagine a place
2: where social distancing and mask wearing doesn't happen. We take a virtual trip to the Channel Islands where the virus has been basically eliminated.
0: We have absolutely no internal restrictions in Guernsey, Alderney, Sark and Herm at all.
2: The race to vaccinate the world in 2021 turned a corner this week when Britain jabbed the first patients with the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. To be honest, I didn't feel a thing. Yeah, Britain, yeah. But soon after, a third national lockdown was announced, attributed to the rapid spread of a new strain of the virus. One key to unlocking the restrictions, according to Prime Minister Boris Johnson, is mass vaccination. Of course, there's one huge difference compared to last year. We're now rolling out the biggest vaccination program in our history. So far, Britain has vaccinated just over 1 million people. Israel, on the other hand, has injected many more, amounting to one out of every six people.
0: Israel has universal health care, but in like-
2: Anshel Pfeffer, the economist Israel correspondent, told The Intelligence, our current affairs podcast, why vaccinations are happening so rapidly there.
0: In Israel, it's divided between four different HMOs, health maintenance organizations, which compete between each other for members and for government funding. And this has been very helpful for the vaccination drive because each of the four HMOs are basically competing between themselves to show that they can roll it out very
2: quickly and efficiently. Around the world, vaccination efforts have faced significant challenges.
1: The sheer logistics of making, certifying, distributing, and then injecting the vaccines into the right people as fast as possible on a global scale is something that's never been done before. So it is really, really complicated.
2: Ed Carr is the Economist deputy editor.
1: There are lots of reasons why some countries like Israel have been particularly successful And others like France, who you might have thought would do it well, have been really struggling.
2: So let me ask, we hear about these logistical challenges.
1: How did governments prepare for them? On the whole, they prepared for them pretty badly, I think. Let's be fair about this. Some of them are kind of structural. So Israel, for instance, has a good electronic record of who's where. That is a very good start if you want to try and get everybody because you know who you've got, how old they are and how to get in touch with them. America, at the other extreme, has this problem where the connection between hospitals and doctors goes through the insurance system, and it's federal as well. So you've got a huge logistical problem of getting things to the right places, you've got the bureaucratic complexity of states and the federal system, and you have the lack of a direct link between the patient and the person who's going to be injecting them. Now, the United States really could have done more to overcome them than it has. In addition to that, it's underfunded, the vaccine effort, and only in the most recent spending package has some billions of dollars been put forward to it. Governments have found that they've been struggling to keep up with the clock. They've been dealing with the problem today and not really thinking hard enough about what comes tomorrow.
2: Why do you think that is? Because clearly at the outset, we have some sympathy with the governments because... There's a lot of uncertainty and there's a lot to do. But we're now almost a year into this pandemic and still we're not making basic planning and preparations.
1: It is very striking that going into the pandemic, countries like Britain and the United States were ranked as being the best prepared and the best able to cope with something like this. As it turns out, actually, experience is much more important. And perhaps you have to live through it to have a sense of how to prepare properly I've no doubt, though, that the logistical problems that have been in evidence over the past few weeks will gradually get ironed out. But there will be a price to pay in lives, especially in countries like Britain, where the new variants of the disease are really burning through the population very fast. And those variants are clearly spreading everywhere. And so in a matter of weeks, they'll start to become an important factor in continental Europe and in the United States as well. And you'll see, as that happens, frustration and complaints about the sluggishness of the logistics and the rollout of the vaccine will start to become more and more pressing, I think.
2: Now, there's also the issue of vaccine nationalism taking place in some countries, notably India, which halted the exports of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine from its Serum Institute. Where do you see this
1: playing out? Well, one thing I think you have to hold in your mind is that for the foreseeable future, there will not be enough vaccine to go around. And so in conditions where supply is short, there's a great temptation for countries to try and get hold of as much as possible. India's behaviour is interesting. It's not quite as harmful as it might sound. The AstraZeneca vaccine being made in India was almost all intended initially anyway to be administered inside India. Most of the supplies for around the world were going to come from South Korea. So the Indian nationalism is a bad sign, don't get me wrong. It's not quite as bad as it sounds because most of it was supposed to go to India.
2: There are vaccines other than the three main Western ones. There's the Russian vaccine, Sputnik V, and several in China. This could help supply, but they haven't released a lot of data yet. Is that troubling?
1: I think it is troubling. These vaccines will become particularly important for countries in which the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines aren't totally suitable, because they rely on such extreme cold. One of the attractions of the Russian and Chinese vaccines is that people might be able to get hold of them. Russia and China are keen to use them as tools of soft power, and they may be more suitable. The problem, as you say, is that although there are claims that they've been through phase three trials... People want to get an independent verification of that, and they want to get sight of the data. And bits of data are flying around. There's been reports that some of the data for one of the Chinese vaccines has gone to the WHO, who'll be able to look at it. There's great hopes that in Brazil, the regulator there, the respected regulator and independent, will be able to certify a vaccine. That's all good. If those vaccines are independently certified, that increases the supply substantially. And it's particularly important for that tranche of countries that can't afford or can't get hold of the Western vaccines.
2: Now, there's also a scientific debate. Last week in Britain, it announced that it was delaying the second dose of the vaccines to enable more vulnerable people to have a first dose more quickly. What do you make of that strategy?
1: It's a fascinating debate, I think. You've seen a strong reaction against it among many scientists in the United States. But in Europe, where supplies really are quite low, there's talk, particularly in Denmark and Germany, of using the same tactic. Now, obviously, if you can give twice as many people 60 or 70% protection, whatever it is, rather than half as many, and then give it a boost at some point later, I think that would be attractive. But there are a number of worries about it, which critics raise. One is that The underlying data really isn't very robust and is in dispute, so it's not clear exactly what the consequences are. The other fear, which again is sort of theoretical, no one really knows whether it's really going to pass, is that if you have lots of people that are semi-immunised out there with a virus floating around, you may be putting selective pressure on the virus to lead to it mutating and adapting to make the vaccines less effective. I think it's important to say that it's a lack of data that we have, not data that says this is dangerous. It'd be really fascinating to see how this plays out. What does the future look like?
2: Politicians around the world have pledged to get large swaths of their population vaccinated early this year. What are the chances of that?
1: There's a lot of uncertainty. All of those feed into the take-up of vaccine, because in some places, amazingly, Ohio it's reported that 60% of workers in care homes are just choosing not to be vaccinated. So that means that any prediction is highly uncertain itself. But I think there's a reasonable hope that healthcare workers around the world could be being vaccinated by mid-second to third quarter, which will immediately make things somewhat better. And in countries with large supplies of vaccine, I think that, especially if they're creative about The logistics, recruiting medical students, dentists, veterinarians, people in retirement to help administer them, getting the process streamlined, injecting people 24 hours a day if necessary, certainly over weekends and holidays. Given all of that and some good luck in the supply and some good luck in the approval of vaccines, I think we could see real progress by the end of the first quarter and even more progress at the end of the second quarter. And then we're looking towards something of a begin to return to normality towards the end of the year. But that is highly speculative, Ken. I suppose as a parting thought, it is important to remember the fact that we have these problems about logistics and vaccine nationalism shouldn't overshadow the fact that to have vaccines at all, this many and this effective, is something we should be grateful for.
2: Ed Carr, thank
1: you very much. Thank you, Ken.
2: This week's issue of The Economist explores how to vaccinate the world. Don't miss out and subscribe. For your best introductory rate, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. That's economist.com slash podcast offer. And the link is in the show notes. And don't forget to tell them Ken sent ya. Coming up... A trip to a COVID-free land.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the
1: warm breeze, relax,
2: and think about
1: work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
2: Between Britain and France, who are both struggling to contain COVID-19, lie the Channel Islands. Smaller islands, like Alderney, Herman Sark, have not had any cases of COVID-19 at all. They're part of what's called the region, or bailiwick, of Guernsey, one of the two main Channel Islands. The bailiwick's population is just over 65,000. Since COVID-19 emerged, it has only had 301 cases and just 13 deaths. But the essential point is this. Since the first wave last spring, it basically eliminated the virus. So how did it achieve this? Dr. Nicola Brink is a virologist and the director of public health for the islands.
0: Dr. Brink, my first question is, how did you spend your New Year's Eve? So I did a combination of two things. is I worked, but my children also had a party. Hold on a second. Wait a minute. A party? I mean... People
2: from outside the household came into the household. Explain this concept to me. What happened?
0: Absolutely. So we have absolutely no internal restrictions in Guernsey, Alderney, Sark and Herm at all. We have no compulsory mask wearing. We can gather in unlimited sizes. We, over the summer, had music festivals. We had, I think, the only pride celebration in the Northern Hemisphere. Towards Christmas we've had carol services, we've had large gatherings switching on our Christmas lights, we've had a huge Christmas Day swim where there were literally thousands of people. We've done that by suppressing the replication of the virus on Ireland. So we don't have any community transmission of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19 at all in Guernsey. How did you get to that point? You took a different approach than the mainland of Britain. So we looked at what was happening in early January, and I was concerned that this virus had pandemic potential. To me, it was transmitting too easily And I felt that this was a virus that we needed to watch very carefully. So we decided at that stage to go for a community test, track and trace program. So in January through into February, we trained up contact tracers and we started looking at developing our own on-island testing capacity. We look to have a turnaround time from swab to test result by certainly under 12 hours. And we'll start contact tracing within an hour of getting a positive result, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And so by the time we got our first case on the 9th of March in Guernsey, we were ready and waiting with a fully trained contact tracing team. And we went into lockdown on the 25th of March. And the reason why we went into lockdown was really threefold. We hadn't quite developed our own on-island testing capacity, We were actually sending samples to the UK for testing. So we were waiting about two, three days because of all the transport to get that result. We were getting intelligence at that stage that there was something going on in the community. So from our primary care colleagues, from our emergency department colleagues, and we had our first unexplained case of community seeding. So that was the first time we had a case that we could not link to travel onto the island or contact with a known case. And we went into lockdown on the 25th, and 10 to 14 days later, we absolutely flattened the curve, and we then reached the stage where we were actually virus-free. We came out of lockdown on the 20th of June, right through to absolutely no on-island restrictions whatsoever, but we have retained our border restrictions. The strategy that you took is the elimination strategy, which is different than
2: elsewhere, particularly in the mainland of Britain. What is the elimination strategy?
0: How would you sum that up? So our aim was to suppress the virus to a level that it didn't impact on our health and care services. We actually exceeded what we wanted to do and were able to eliminate or stop community transmission of the virus. Now, the advantage of that for us is that we've been able to open up our internal economy. Over the summer, and indeed into Christmas, our restaurants have been full, people have been out and about, they've been shopping. So that's been extremely helpful, but also from a point of view of of looking at people's mental health and well-being, is they're able to be out and about, people were able to visit their family on Ireland.
2: Guernsey and Alderney are one of the few regions that have eliminated the virus. It's a strategy that left many governments envious. The most famous example of elimination is New Zealand. In June 2020, I spoke to Michael Baker, a professor of public health at the University of Otago, Wellington, and the man who advocated for the elimination strategy in New Zealand.
3: Normally, we look to the West for advice. We look at CDC and the US, of course, and Public Health of England and the European Centers for Disease Control and the World Health Organization. And in the end, they w- the advice was wrong. And the level of alarm was not particularly high. And it's been called complacent exceptionalism, that it was going to come, but it wouldn't be as bad as people thought. And it would wash over the Western world quite quickly. But people like myself were looking more at the experience of Asia and saying, actually, What they're doing looks much more effective. And the report that came out at the end of February showed that the Chinese had stopped it, which is pretty amazing, stopping a a respiratory pandemic in full flight. So that was a proof of concept. And then there were countries like Taiwan that were doing even better. They had no pandemic at all because they did everything right. Early in January, they started looking at managing their borders and they had a mask-wearing culture and so on. So it was looking to Asia, not to the West.
2: Do you think that part of the reason for the success in the case of, say, Taiwan and New Zealand is the small country-island effect? Or is that just really a non-issue?
3: Yeah, I think elimination could theoretically work anywhere. Uh, I mean, you just need a few basic elements. And it was three things. It's managing your borders. It's reducing transmission in your country with physical distancing and hygiene measures like masks. And the third thing is contact tracing to manage cases and outbreaks. These are the three things that you need. And if you throw them at the pandemic decisively and I think vigorously, they work. And, you know, if you look at the countries that are succeeding, it's quite remarkable. Like Vietnam and Mongolia are also succeeding. They have long, complex borders and their emerging economies, not wealthy countries. It's easier in New Zealand and Australia. The other countries that did very well, the Pacific Islands and probably other islands that just did an exclusion approach. They didn't even have to do elimination, they just didn't let the virus in. So there are countries of all different sizes and levels of development that have succeeded against the virus. But the essential elements were, I think, recognising the problem, so effective risk assessment, then taking decisive action quickly, That's what made the difference.
2: Dr. Brink, you've said that you've been, quote, planning for
0: this for 30 years. Explain what you mean by that. Well, to me, it's never a case of if a pandemic occurs. It's when a pandemic occurs. Pandemics will occur. And when we ran our tabletop exercise towards the end of 2019, it was at the time that Brexit was being discussed. And I really felt that we couldn't not do our planning exercise because I knew that we would see another pandemic. So we'd seen swine flu in 2009, but it was inevitable that we would see another pandemic. And at that stage, we recognised the fact that it might not be an influenza pandemic, it might not be a flu pandemic, it might be another respiratory virus. We knew about the first SARS virus, and we knew that if a similar virus occurred with a high level of transmissibility, it would have pandemic potential. So... It's just basic virological principles that we know that these things are going to occur. And it's our duty to make sure that we've prepared as much as we can. Preparedness and planning was critical for successful responses to the pandemic.
2: Many politicians have come under fire for ignoring or delaying preparations for a disease X scenario. Understanding the mechanism of the pathogen is important too. Michael Baker told me that recognizing that the coronavirus is not like a flu virus was crucial.
3: It's interesting, in New Zealand, the politicians leapt ahead of the officials. The officials were rolling out the standard pandemic influenza plan, which accepts that you cannot contain the pandemic. You can slow it down at the borders, you can stamp out cases, and then you very quickly move to physical distancing and so on to dampen down transmission but the pandemic wave will wash over you in the space of with influenza maybe you know six eight weeks and it's come and gone as is demonstrated in the past but this was a very different virus so we had a good plan but the wrong virus and it was a matter of the politicians actually in the end short-circuited that thinking and they realized there was an alternative approach and our business leaders interestingly also got it and became big advocates so New Zealand changed direction very swiftly. We threw everything at the virus at the start. When we had only 100 cases in the country, no fatalities, we went to the most intense lockdown you could imagine, and basically it extinguished the virus. And you can use a bushfire metaphor if you like, basically just poured water on the whole thing and then used contact tracing to deal with the hot embers that were left and, of course, shut the borders, which is like a
2: firebreak, to stop more fire coming in. Since COVID-19 emerged, just 25 people have died from it in New Zealand. Dr Brink, we have vaccines now, and vaccination programs seem to be slow or chaotic. How are the islands handling this? How are you rolling
0: out the vaccines, and have you begun injecting people? Yes, we've begun injecting people. So starting off with care and residential home, residents, staff, health and care staff, the over 80s, then going down. We're well into the, the vaccination programme. At the moment, we're using the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, but the AstraZeneca-Oxford vaccine has recently been licensed and we're looking to designate the vaccine within guernsey and sarkenholm within the next few days. That will be really important for us because to try and get a defrosted vaccine to our smaller island's in, for example, poor weather, would be very difficult. So we're looking at hopefully sending the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine to some of our smaller islands, and we've mapped out that programme. And we anticipate we'll deliver vaccines to 35,000 people. Obviously, each person gets two doses of vaccine, and we're hoping to roll that out by late spring. On the smaller islands within Guernsey's jurisdiction, such as
2: Alderney, Herman sark suppressing the virus is crucial. Alderney, the largest of these islands, has just one hospital with 22 beds and no ventilators. Dr. Brink, what does a more infectious variant of the virus mean for how
0: you respond? That's a really good question. It's something we've been talking about. So for people who come in to the island, they will isolate for 14 days, but we'll test them on day 13. If they decline testing on day 13, they'll do another 7 days in isolation, so 21 days in total. We know that by day 7, you'll detect about 95% of infections, but there will be some late-developing infections. And if you have a late-developing infection you can potentially have an infectious person released into the community. Now, in our situation, where we have no evidence of community transmission, the reintroduction into the community would be quite profound for us because we'd have to then look at potentially reintroducing some of the non-pharmaceutical interventions, so gathering size limits and so on. Now, you've
2: experienced some fame in the islands and beyond. You've received an MBE. People are toasting a drink, a drink to Nicola Brink. How does that feel? Clearly, you didn't expect such grandeur when you started out as a virologist.
0: Yeah, it's really humbling. And I've been incredibly lucky working in this community. You know, We've put restrictions on people's lives, which they've borne with grace. And Fortitude, it's been a real privilege working with these people as a group. And they've made what could have been a horrendous year into something that I think we can take a lot of positives from. It's been difficult, but I think we can take a lot of positives from it. If you look into your crystal ball, When do you expect to open those borders? You're probably about a month too early asking me that question. I think we need to see how the rollout of the vaccine programme occurs, and I also think we need to see what happens with this variant of the original SARS-CoV-2 virus. I think the increased transmissibility associated with the new variant is worrying, and I think we need to see what the impact of that is. But what I can say is I honestly believe the vaccination programme is a real light at the end of the tunnel. We can see the end of this. I've got the date written on my office wall, but I'm not going to share it with you. That sounds very fair. Dr. Nicola Brink, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me.
2: And our thanks also to Professor Michael Baker in New Zealand. And thank you for listening. And please don't forget to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It matters hugely so more people can find the show and enjoy it. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, stuck but dreaming of a trip to Guernsey or New Zealand, this is The Economist.